Jesus had a secret he wanted to tell his disciples. He eagerly wanted to tell them, but he held himself back all the time that he was with them until the night before he died on the cross. Welcome everyone to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen. It's been my honor to be the Bible teacher of this ministry for over 20 years, and we've rejoiced to be able to come to you every weekday. This is a program of the International Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism and its Mission Fellowship, the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. You can learn more about our work by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. As I said in our opening, the Lord Jesus exercised great discipline over his desire to tell his disciples about the meaning of his death and the gift that it would be to them. And then, on the night before he died, he did tell them. That meal revealed his plan for them and his plan for you and me as well. I just want to say this. You know, there's this idea, there's an idea being projected out there. You can see it now. There's a current trend within progressive Christianity reject the idea of the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ suffering the penalty for our sins. They're saying that this is like divine child abuse. God bringing the abuse upon the Son in order to save us is cruel and wicked and the Lord Jesus is telling us, no, I am not a victim of man's sin. I'm a volunteer of their salvation. Christ gave himself voluntarily with his full authority. He was authorized to do this, to die for us and to rise again for us. He knew the victory that lie ahead. The fourth thing I want you to see is that he taught that the cross was an expression which was an expression of man's sin, was also an expression of God's love. You go back to John chapter 3. Jesus says, For God so loved the world, to Nicodemus, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. At that last Passover meal, Lord Jesus begins that meal, and as he begins that meal, John gives us kind of a typification of what's taking place in that moment. John tells us in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As Jesus takes over the customs of the Passover feast, and he begins, begins to explain the meaning of that meal as being projected and answered on his cross, Jesus, John tells us, does it as an expression of this great love that he had for them and he carries forward this love for them to the very end. And as the Lord Jesus is doing this, he says what we've just read, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew the suffering that was coming upon himself. He knew that he was to bear the punishment for their sins. He didn't shrink back from it. When he came to the garden, he shrank back from the agony of Gethsemane. But before that moment, he actually was moving towards it with a fervent desire. He longed to complete the mission that he had because it was a mission of love. It was an expression of his deep and profound love for his disciples. He eagerly desired, fervently desired, to participate in a meal that was all about his sacrifice for their sins. The Passover lamb was a sacrifice that was made for families in order that their sin might be taken away and the judgment of God upon them might be averted. It was first instituted when Israel was in Egypt and it was the last event that takes place upon the last plague that he sends upon Egypt in order to rescue the people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. 
And God commands the people of Israel at that time that they were to take a lamb, that they were to bring the lamb in their home for a series of days. It had to be a spotless lamb. And then at a specific assigned day, they were to take that lamb. The father of the household was to lay his hand upon the head of that lamb, signifying that he was identifying with that lamb. And that lamb, in some sense, was identifying with that man and his whole family. And then that man was to sacrifice that lamb and slay it. And then the lamb's body was to be prepared as a meal before the whole family. Its blood was to be painted on the doorpost of the home as a sign that they had come under the sacrifice of that lamb on their behalf. Then they were to eat all of that meal together in the household, or whoever was in the household had to eat that meal together. Now the Lord Jesus is with his disciples and they're remembering that sacrifice of that lamb. And the Lord Jesus is teaching that he is the final Passover sacrifice. That his life is the life that they're to feast upon by faith in order that they might be saved, in order that they might be delivered from God's judgment. And he has fervently, he says, longed for the day when he would share this feast with his own. He had fervently longed for the day when he would commemorate with him the sacrifice that he was voluntarily laying down for them in his love. He knew the victory of salvation and he knew that it was provided for them and suffering for them and on their behalf. And he fervently desired to eat that meal with him. He says, and I'll eat it again with you in my kingdom. And listen, I want you to know something. He fervently desires to eat that meal with us as well. He fervently longs to participate in the meal that commemorates his suffering for your sins in your place. I'd like to talk a little bit very briefly about this cross. And there are three things I want you to look at. Just a little more deeply into this idea. And it comes with us in the idea of the Passover meal in part at least. There are just three things that I want us to notice here. And the first thing is I want us to see that the cross was central to his mission. We've been saying this, but the Lord Jesus says, remember he says, do this in remembrance of me. The cross was central to his mission. He says, do this in remembrance of me. He wished that he might be regarded, his life might be regarded primarily to his disciples this moment, not by the things that he had done in the past. He doesn't want them to think about their interactions with him over the last four years. He doesn't want them to think about the great miracles that he performed. He doesn't want them to draw upon the experience of what they've heard him teaching in this moment he wants his life before them to be commemorated his remembrance their remembrance of him to be in his death this is odd when we go to a funeral we've talked about this in the past there is always that opportunity that time when people stand up when they share their memories of a person and nobody gets up and says you know i remember how agonizing it was when he died i remember the agony went through it's such a wonderful thought we don't do that but the lord jesus before he dies says I want you to remember my death. I want you to remember this. I want to commemorate before you the death that I am going to give on your sake because it defines, it's central to the purpose of my life and my ministry. It's through this that you'll understand all of my miracles. You'll understand all of my teaching. You'll now begin to understand all of your experiences with me. They're all to be recalled and explored and understood and set forth even to others in light of the cross and the life that I'm giving for you. It's central to everything. Do this in remembrance of me all of my life. Look at the life of Christ, he's saying, through the cross of Christ. What are we told in Revelation will be the image of Christ that men will see? You might remember, John has an image of Christ before the throne, and a declaration is made, Behold, the Lion of Judah that has overcome. And he looks to see the Lion of Judah, and what does he see when he sees the Lion of Judah? 
sees a lamb as though he'd been slain. All throughout eternity, God has established in the Son a central identity as one who suffered and died for our sins. Even throughout eternity, it will be central to our worship and our praise of the lion who has prevailed on our behalf. The next thing I want you to see here is the cross was for us. The doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ or the vicarious atonement of Christ, of the penal substitution of Christ where he dies in our place for our sake, for our sins, is reiterated over and over again, but it's clearly understood in the Passover itself. Jesus is basically saying to the disciples, this is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant given for you. This lamb, this lamb that you're partaking in, this meal that's before us that represents the sacrifice that was made on our behalf in order that we might be set free. This is me. This is my body. This is my sacrifice. This one who bore the brunt of God's wrath in order that you might not have the angel of death sweep over you. This was done. This is me and this was done for you. The view of the atonement. The understanding of the atonement, there are different angles at which we can, there are different ways in which we can understand this atoning work of Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful book called The Cross of Christ written by John Stott. There are individuals who say that there are various theories of the atonement. You'll read the Bible and you'll find these different theories of the atonement, different ideas of the atonement. And Stott is clear to say, no, these are not theories of the atonement. These are images of the atonement. God gives us different, you might say, snapshots or portrayals so that we have a different ways of understanding the full way in which God has dealt with our sin and delivered us. And Stott mentions four, I'd like to share them with you, four images of the atonement. One is the cross as a place of propitiation. The other one is a cross as a place of redemption. The third is the cross as a place of justification. The fourth is the cross as a place of reconciliation. Now here are the images. The propitiation takes us before the temple. And there in the temple we see animals being sacrificed from the beginning of the day till the end of the day. Throughout all day, the blood of the sacrifice is flowing before the temple and it's being sprinkled on the altar and it's being brought in the presence of God. And the ongoing sacrifices that are being made are telling us that God hates sin and must deal with it. That the wages of sin is death and there must be a punishment made and required. And This is called propitiation. The idea is in perpetuation that God diverts his anger against sin upon the sacrifice. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 this, God has set him, Jesus Christ, forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. He is the one who adverts God's anger against our sin. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The temple sacrifices day in and day out bore the message that a loving God hates sin and will vent his righteous anger upon and wrath upon its object, but that God in love has made it so that another may bear the brunt of his wrath upon itself instead of it coming upon us. Another might be placed as the object of God's wrath and judgment in order that, that we might escape that wrath and judgment and that God's Fury against sin might be appeased in another. Though he hates our sin, he loves us. And he diverts his wrath away from us and upon himself. And we see this in the temple. You've not seen that before. You've never gone to the temple and seen it. But the Jews would recognize it. The Jews would have understood it. This portrayal and this picture of God's judgment against sin 
and the turning away of the wrath of God's judgment against sin upon the object of the sacrifice. The second one is the cross is this place of redemption. And now God takes us away from the temple and he brings us into the marketplace, the slave marketplace. Their individuals have bonded themselves into slavery. Oftentimes they've run out of their resources. They have to raise some funds. They have some debt to pay. And so they give themselves over in bond to slavery in order to pay whatever debts they have. And the image here is that because of our sin, we have sold ourselves into slavery. We've enchained ourselves and embonded ourselves to sin and slavery. And Christ has come to buy us out of slavery at the cost of his own life. He gives his life in our place. He gives himself up and surrenders himself up to our chains in order that we might be set free from that bondage ourselves. And then he enters into death and he breaks those chains. He overcomes our bondage and sin. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter calls us to live worshiping God knowing this, knowing that we were not redeemed, that means bought, with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood, that means the precious life of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Thanks for joining us today at the Bread of Life. In our next broadcast, we'll continue to look at two other places in which the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, in the temple, in the marketplace, in the court hall, and in the home. All wonderful images of the salvation that God has brought us. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about our ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.